Welcome everybody to another edition of Legal Tech Week. It's August 4th, 2023, and this is the show where we talk about the top stories in legal tech and innovation from the past week or so. I'm Bob Ambrogi. I am the moderator, and I also have a blog called Law Sites and a podcast called Law Next. And I've uh, got a couple of uh, guest panelists today in addition to uh, some of our regulars. So let me start by introducing uh, a first-time guest on this show, Doug Austin. Doug, go and tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks, Bob. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, I am Doug Austin. I am editor of eDiscovery Today, which is a daily blog about eDiscovery. Uh, I've been uh, I usually introduce myself by saying I've been daily blogging for almost 13 years, which means I'm either committed or I ought to be. But in this group, I think I'm probably fit in pretty well. So, um, but I also, my background is uh, 30 plus years in lit support and e-discovery um, uh, project management and uh, consulting. So uh, I've used that to springboard into the blogging career and now I have a full-time blog. So that's what I do uh, first and foremost. Yeah, 13 years, you're still kind of a relative newbie when you're... Uh, yeah, compared to, compared to you, Bob, I certainly... Um, and uh, and returning uh, again after joining us uh, last week as well, uh, Jeff Brandt. Jeff, say hello. Thank you for having me again. Uh, my name is Jeff Brandt. Uh, my day job is the CIO at the law firm of Jackson Kelly out of Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, my morning job before my day job... Uh, is as editor of the Pinhawk Law Technology Digest. Uh, pleasure to be here with you all again today. Thanks. And uh, among our regular panelists back today, Gina Grady. Say hello. I am Gina Grady. I write the Dewey B Strategic blog, and I also write a monthly column for Legal Tech Hub, and I never talk about my day job. <laughs> and my blog is, I just did the math, it's 12 years old. So Doug started right before me. All right. And uh, Stephanie Wilkins. Uh, yes, the, the newbiest of them all. Um, Stephanie Wilkins, Editor-in-Chief of Legal Tech News at ALM. All right. And I don't really intentionally always calling you last, Joe, but you just always pop up as the bottom right square on my screen. I don't know why that is, but uh, maybe I mean, it's, it's the weightiness that you bring and you sort of fall down to that. The gravitas. Yeah. The gravitas. Uh, it's like his seat in the bar, you know, he has his seat. <laughs> Norm. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, this is Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I've been at Above the Law for 10 years. Uh, so, so I guess second, second youngest to this gig. Uh, I am, uh, you know, I'm here in New York. And uh, before I lived in New York, I lived in Big Ten country, which uh, in this case is the Pacific Northwest, which uh, is now Big Ten country, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I'm going to, uh, it, it being the week in which the uh, ABA annual meeting is going on, not that any of us are there that, I, that I'm aware of, uh, I'm going to exercise moderator privilege and, and talk first about my own story, only because I thought it was a, a pretty outrageous one about, about the ABA and uh, I think pretty revealing about some of the issues that, uh, that uh, continue to uh, hold down or hold back the ABA from really being any kind of a force for change in the legal profession. This was the story, a story I did about the fact that uh, uh, way back after the whole do not pay dust off, which we talked about a million times on this show back in January and February after uh, Joshua Browder's, uh, it was some of the apps that do not pay had were shown by Catherine Tucson and Paralegal to be basically 
not really apps at all, but kind of smoke and mirrors. Um, two people who've been very much involved in, in legal regulatory reform and advocating for it, Maya Markovich and Tom Gordon, uh, wrote an op-ed uh, basically saying that if these kinds of entities like do not pay were being regulated as alternative business structures or alternative legal services providers uh, under a Utah type model, something like that, um, then this wouldn't have happened because the regulators would have tested out these apps and made sure they worked and, and there wouldn't have been this issue. I, really a mild op-ed, but they had submitted it to the ABA Center for Innovation. Uh, ABA Center for Innovation said, sure, we'll publish that. We've got this big report coming out August 1st, uh, and we'll include that in our report. Uh, and then somewhere along the line, the ABA Center for Innovation decided it might not be politically correct within the ABA to publish this op-ed. Uh, and they pulled it. Only they never told the authors. Uh, and uh, the authors didn't actually find out until I happened to email the Center for Innovation earlier this week asking about when it was coming out. And uh, apparently that reminded them that they should tell the authors that it's not coming out. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, all of this kind of happened is happening against a backdrop where uh, the, the ABA Center for Innovation has recently come under a, a finance review within the ABA, uh, looking at very closely at its budget and its spending and whether they can maintain the same budget. And where um, within the next couple of days, uh, the new incoming ABA president is going to be uh, appointing a new board to oversee the center, which is going to be led by a couple of people who have been strong opponents of any talk of uh, regulatory reform of any kind. Uh, one uh, guy in particular being the former president of the New York State Bar Association will become chair of the Center for Innovation. Um, so it seems, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not that the ABA itself as an entity isn't sort of censoring this, this piece, but what it's done is kind of created this, this hostile working environment, this at atmosphere uh, in which a group devoted to talking about innovation within the ABA is afraid to talk about regulatory reform. I mean, and, you know, how can you talk about innovation in legal without at least talking about it? I mean, you don't have to propose it, but at least talk about it. So I, I thought it was just a really outrageous and shocking story. And I, I, I hope it, I hope somebody uh, down out there in Denver this week is talking about it as well. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the conversation has come up a lot in the last year at various conferences about, I mean, there's, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but there's definitely a strong feeling out there that state bar associations and the ABA are standing in the way, maybe, I mean, they're going to have to make a decision here. I mean, with UPL guidelines and things like that with tech advancing. So I'm, I mean, I'm kind of, I guess, not shocked, but shocked that they just refuse to even run this at all, because aren't you even, the very least, just to have open debate. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, well, speaking of uh, the ABA conference, we've got uh, in a couple of weeks, we're all heading off to uh, most of us are heading off to uh, uh, wonderful uh, Orlando for uh, for the uh, ILTA conference. And uh, Doug, uh, as, as as our guest this week, uh, uh, you've uh, you've uh, taken a look at uh, some of what's happening there. You want to talk about that? 
Sure, thanks, Bob. Uh, yes, I'm very excited to be heading from one hot and humid place uh, you know, in Houston to another hot and humid place in Orlando, but because uh, uh, it's not exactly my favorite venue for ILTA, but uh, uh, still excited about the conference. And one of the things I, I do and I've done for probably the last few years with major conferences is uh, kind of go through the agenda and kind of uh, load it into a, a, word, uh, a word cloud app and kind of see what I get. Uh, and one of the things I try to do is I try to then go through and I, I usually make a first pass and then I kind of uh, uh, remove obvious words like, you know, you know, like session and join and learn and things like that that uh, tend to show up a lot in these sort of agendas. I try to strip off any, um, uh, any, any uh, job titles or things like that, just really focus on title and description. So, and, and then what I do is I kind of report on the terms that you're seeing the most. And then also because eDiscovery today focuses on things like eDiscovery and let's support and uh, cyber and data privacy, InfoGov, and of course, AI. Uh, you can't not focus on AI these days. Um, uh, I try to particularly point that uh, those terms out and kind of where they stand. So, you know, some of the things that I saw from this year, um, Data was the top occurring word, uh, so um, not, a, not a big surprise there. Um, uh, management and business and teams were kind of next in the list. Uh, uh, I didn't, sometimes I do uh, exclude technology or technologies because after all, there's a legal tech conference, but this time I, I included it in. So technology 25 times, technologies another 14 times. Uh, after those terms, um, uh, AI uh, occurs, uh, just the term AI occurs 25 times, and then artificial intelligence is another couple, and then gen AI is three more times and so forth. So roughly about 30 some odd times is where AI terms tend to appear, and I kind of went through them, and it looks like there's about 10 uh, sessions dedicated to AI related topics. There's others that maybe have it as a kind of a tangential topic, uh, but definitely 10 sessions dedicated to it. And it's probably about a 50% increase over last year in terms of the use of the terms, because I did a work cloud again last year. So of course, with more AI, others tend to suffer. E-discovery last year, the e-discovery and discovery occurred 25 times in the agenda. This, this year, it only occurs eight. Um, uh, so seems like less of a focus on e-discovery. Litigation, uh, seven times as opposed to 13 last year. Um, uh, a couple of areas that are bigger, uh, security uh, occurs 13 and cyber occurs 14 plus cybersecurity occurs once. So 26 between the two of those. So there are a, a fair number of uh, security and cybersecurity sessions. Um, uh, there are uh, two or three governance sessions, uh, data and information governance, uh, six times versus nine last year, so a little drop there. Last year, privacy only occurred twice in the whole agenda, which was really surprising to me. Uh, this year, I was initially surprised because it occurs seven times, but it turns out six of those occurrences are in a single session description. So not really that much of a change. But you know, one of the, one of the things I just try to do is, is look at that as a way of kind of getting a sense of what some of the topics being discussed are. And it's always just a little fun exercise to get into it a bit and uh, you know, kind of see what, uh, what to expect. I dropped you know, the link that, in the chat, so yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I, and that's a super useful, uh, useful 
endeavor that you did for all of us, especially those of us who like to, you know, walk around the people who have a lot of money in this industry and kind of drop buzzwords, hoping that they'll give us a bunch. I've often mm-hmm. like walked by people and talked about my data lake, AI driven. Uh, so now I can, now I know exactly what people are looking for. I mean, hopefully I can uh, secure some money for my even less than vaporware. Um, yeah. You just have to make sure you're wearing the right uh, uh, ribbons on your, yeah. uh, your little oh, lanyard. So you go to, so the key is you go to Michael's before you go down there, you buy all different colors of ribbons. Then you see what they're handing out. And I just kind of cut them. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> there's, there, there's a method to all this. Come on, people. <laughs> gotta, gotta have the, uh, the requisite amount of flair, right. Uh, as you know, we, as we remember from the movie, um, oh, yeah. uh, so yeah, um, yeah, it's you know it's kind of I do it at Legal Week every year. I do it at Iltacon. Uh, I think I did it at Clock this year. This was the first year I went to Clock. Uh, so I just kind of find it interesting to see what kind of the agenda shows in terms of that. And uh, over you know now that I've been doing it for a few years, I'm starting to compare year over year. So it is interesting you know to see that you, we saw a bit of a drop in e-discovery and lit support. I am going to be part of the lit support uh, roundtable panel on. Uh, Thursday, one of the last uh, panels of the conference, uh, but I'm excited about that. So we're going to be talking about uh, some uh, rip from the headlines types of cases, and that'll be fun and and some best practices there. But yeah, it's certainly one of the things that I think is indicative of what's important to um, you know folks out there. And obviously, uh, you know, as a blogger, I I keep. Uh, blogging about AI because people keep reading it. It's one of the more popular topics out there, and you want to you want to read what people want, uh, and you keep thinking they're going to get tired of it, but so far they haven't. So I've joked. That's Stephanie's that should, mantra. Yeah, I, 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 I've <laughs> joked that I should rename my blog um, uh, AI today, um, but yeah. uh, not yet. Um, I'm still focused on e-discovery first and foremost. But yeah, it it is an it is an indicative uh, you know aspect of how conferences are evolving. Should, should we be worried that one of the biggest terms on your uh, map is uh, the word Teams? Does that mean we're going to have lots of sessions on Microsoft Teams? Well, so that was one I've looked at it in the past. There are there are a few instances. I think uh, I didn't put it on the list, but I think Microsoft occurs 13 times. So Teams is in there for part of that, but also Teams is generically used some of the time. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I definitely, in fact, actually, you can see Microsoft right next to it. I pulled it up here on my other screen. Microsoft is much smaller. So Teams is used generically uh, probably more than half of those times, fortunately. So we won't be hit over the head with Microsoft Teams sessions. Well, for all of those of us who are writing about AI, one of the big questions we're all writing about is whether AI will replace the work of lawyers or some of the work of lawyers and uh, been all sorts of uh, speculation about that. Uh, Jeff, you've got uh, you've got uh, maybe some hard and fast data or harder and faster data. <laughs> I can't take uh, credit for that, but uh, I highlighted in the Pinhawk uh, this morning, the three geeks have uh, just concluded uh, three part series on what it costs you, if you will, uh, to to get AI in your firm. So that was uh, Ryan and Greg and, and Toby, uh, you know, three names that you hear quite a lot from and uh, clearly I think are, are uh, industry thought leaders. But it, it's interesting. Uh, like I said, there's three parts to it. Uh, it all comes off the Goldman Sachs 
survey that uh, basically claimed that 44% of something was going to be reduced and legal. Uh, and uh, Ryan took th that really to task in terms of whether it was 40% of what exactly uh, what was going to be uh, removed. Was it work? Was it positions? Was it legal tasks? If you look at the different articles that spin off of the Goldman Sachs, it really kind of cuts across and it's very unclear exactly what that means. Uh, Ryan was also very um, unhappy with the Goldman Sachs data, uh, too small a data set. And Grace basically, <coughs> although they didn't describe it this way, I would say kind of garbage data. Uh, so the three of them dug into, I think it was uh, LexisNexis council link data and came back with just all kinds of interesting things where, again, charts out the wazoo uh, calculations that you can look at. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, they've got the uh, senior partner, I think it is, making $1,000 an hour. Okay, well, that's that's not uh, my law firm's uh, strata of, of uh, hourly rates. So uh, it, it definitely is a big law type calculation, but even so, you know, they came out with maybe 20%, uh, excuse me, uh, that 5% of partner time would be removed by AI, 20% of non-partner time. And then, so they ran calculations and, and so on on that, and then said, well, what if we're being too conservative in all our calculations? So then they ran 20% and 40%. Uh, they're really long posts, but definitely well worth uh, spending some time digging into. I, I just thought they were fascinating. I mean, the the uh, uh, what was the uh, the third one was uh, AI apocalypse uh, in terms of what it potentially is going to do to law. Um, <coughs> some good uh, ultimate um, you know things that you'd be doing, you know, managing your leverage and you know not going out quick and buying. Uh, you know, knee-jerk reaction to uh, generative AI tools and being experimented with it now, get to know it, uh, which I think is always good advice, especially when you're not experimenting uh, with client data. Uh, but I, I just thought the three posts together uh, were rock solid. I'll probably be rereading all three several times to get, uh, try and ingest all the different pieces of data. But I thought it was a, a fantastic read, well laid out, uh, even you know, language that I could understand. Uh, so I thought it, uh, it just worked at, at all levels. Well, it's always good when somebody's uh, a little bit skeptical of something that's reported in the news and goes back and tries to, uh, you know, their own get, get to the bottom yeah. of it and, and see and see what the truth is. And, and, and it looked like, I mean, in this case, the skepticism in part just came from the fact that it was getting uh, reported in the media in such different ways. I mean, it, you know, it, as they said, it was, you know, the, the report was claiming that 44% of something in the legal industry was going to be replaced by generative AI. But depending on where you read about it, that something could change. And there was kind of no timeline associated with it whatsoever. I mean, is it like it's going to be replaced in the next year or the next 20 years, you know, uh, in 100 years? So it was, I, I think the part of the problem was the, the, uh, Goldman Sachs report was was not all that well put together to begin with, uh, which then led to some of the media reports being somewhat uh, confusing uh, about it. Uh, and there's a know, drastic they, difference you know. if you're talking about 44% of legal tasks versus 40% of positions or anything yeah. else. I mean, I, I think I'm still under the opinion at this point that 
when it comes to the general arguments about will I, I uh, yeah, will AI replace lawyers, I think it's going to be an aggregate. It's not going to be that you're going to lose, yeah, Jeff Brandt, I'm not that I'm a lawyer, Bob, we use Bob. So Bob's going to be replaced uh, because just flat out AI is going to replace him. No, it's going to be a function of, it's going to come along and it's going to chew away 10, 15, 20% of uh, legal and non-legal tasks that create what is a lawyer or what a lawyer, I guess, ultimately is paid for. And so in the aggregate, you know, if you are Denton's to Chong and you've got, what is it, 10,000 lawyers and you now have AI doing 20% of that, you don't need 10,000 lawyers anymore. I think, Bob, I think you calling it somewhat confusing is very generous. I thought it was some pretty egregious reporting. I think someone in the, it went by too fast. Someone in the comments said it was almost clickbaity. And I think it was like, I remember thinking it was tasks. So many people jumped with jobs. And I think a lot of people didn't even bother to see if that's what it said, because people are going to get freaked out and click on an article that says replacing jobs. I mean, yeah, I thought it was very quick and fairly shoddy reporting because it was so widely reported. Not to mention okay. that those firms are still on complete hold in regard to adopting generative AI. Yeah. So I have a real uh, serious question based on all of that. Is AI apocalypse what we're going with? I thought, is it not AI get AI Mageddon, uh, AI gate, AI Gazi? Like we have so many options. Uh, I, I just want to know what we're, so we all coalesce around one buzzword. I want to make you sure. You need to we, ask ChatGPT that question, Joe. <laughs> All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Ryan has dubbed it AI apocalypse. I think that's good. We can we can just go with All Ryan. Right. Amazing. <laughs> Ryan says GPT Amazing. wrote that title. So um, there you go. There you go. Yeah. It is. It is the robots taking over already. They're yeah. titling everything. So. So yeah, what was the bottom it. line? Did we get a bottom line here? I mean, the, I guess maybe one other one, perhaps criticism of the of the Ryan Greg Toby analysis, and, and not really a, a criticism, but uh, they, I think they their analysis because they're pulling out this data, um, uh, this billing data from 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 corporate legal to do their analysis. It it's still skewed towards larger firm. It's it it doesn't even their analysis doesn't take into account firms of I think under 100 lawyers or so. So there's a whole I big chunk of the legal world that's that's not being talked about there. I, I think that's true. And, and I think uh, somewhere in one of the three posts it's admitted that it's not uh, uh, the best data sample. It's better, better. than the Goldman Sachs. Uh, you know, good, better, best. Uh, we'll leave it to the, the geeks to uh, continue to work on it and get an even better uh, data set that... Uh, uh, will give us the the ultimate answer, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I think the real focus has got to be task based. It's really about the tasks. Obviously, from my world, document review is one of the tasks that we all look at, and what's going to happen with with the technology that's already in place with you know Tar and Cal and so forth, and now with Gen AI and some of the platforms are starting to introduce that. Um, to me, I think it's it's the tasks that you should be looking at and what it's going to do to specific tasks as opposed to the overall. Yeah. Well, and I've always been saying too that like when you look at tasks, that's like even especially in a in a profession like legal. I remember when I was an associate, you could have taken away forty four percent of my tasks, and I still would have billed way too many hours. So like it's going to take a lot of tasks 
to destroy an entire legal lawyer's role or legal professional's role. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, sticking with that topic of AI for a bit, uh, one of the other questions that comes up all the time is how can lawyer, how can lawyers responsibly use this technology? And, uh, uh, Stephanie, uh, you've got some news on that front. Yes. Um, a whole group of people that are much smarter than I am, uh, led by Daza <laughs> oh, thank Greenwood. You. Oh, you mean us? No. I've... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> led by Daza Greenwood out of uh, law at MIT.edu. They put together a task force. It's been it's been running sort somewhat quietly in a while for a while now. I mean, they did, I guess they did in-person things at Codex and then up at MIT once. Um, but they've been putting together and sourcing principles for ethical use, responsible use of AI in law. Um, and they've put out their first draft of it uh, and they're soliciting open comments. Currently they have seven different principles and they, they announced in there, if, uh, not next week, but Wednesday the 16th, they're gonna have a Zoom forum where they invite people to come and give their input, but they really are just trying because they want to encourage the use of AI in legal um, but they want to do it responsibly and ethically, and they want to tackle all these things and just put these overriding principles and how they're doing it is, you know, they're taking a bunch of suggestions and sort of grouping them together into outstanding principles. And um, it's been a really interesting process. I guess going forward, the task force is going to be a joint task force between MIT and Codex. And yeah, a lot of it's not surprising, but the one point that they all sort of found most surprising is there's just the biggest question mark is the issue of consent and to what level do, you know, you have to get the consent of clients to use this or like in what ways do you have to do it? And because, you know, we you never got consent about other technologies. So, and also it sort of brings into, they don't mention it, but how we've talked about these generative AI orders from the courts where it's just like, well, where do you draw the line? Some just say AI, some say generative AI. Why aren't there already duties? So consent is the biggest issue that they told me that they are grappling with and had some of the most surprising responses on. Um, but no, I encourage you to look at the principles and join that Zoom there. There's a form you fill out and they'll send you the link to the Zoom because they really, really do want this to be a grassroots effort and get a lot of input from the industry. Um, they're all very smart people that are always, they're very self-deprecating of saying, we couldn't do this. Everyone is smarter than us. So they're great. It, it's just a great group and they're trying to do a really great thing in my opinion. But to your point on... Um restrictions on outside counsel. Uh, I have seen uh, outside counsel guidelines that you know, restrict uh, cloud computing uh, five, six years ago. Uh, everybody was like, some clients were, no, you can't. So I mean, you have to justify it. Um, I know clients that uh, don't want any of their data accessed via Android uh, mobile phones, mobile devices, uh, because they're considered riskier and uh, iPhone stuff. So I, I fully expect at some point in time that I'll see outside council guidelines that will start talking about generative AI. Haven't seen it yet, uh, but I, I do expect that uh, we'll see it in some way, shape or form. I mean, you look at, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so NetDoc sounds the ND Max stuff, we talked about that uh, in the last time. Uh, you know, Little things that again, I, I'm just impressed by this, that NetDoc's got, uh, the risk team or whatever they call it inside Microsoft to not review 
the AI stuff that's going through NDMAC. So if you're dealing with a case that is uh, human trafficking or other violent or things that are not necessarily polite uh, conversation type of things, you know, all those things through Microsoft, through OpenAI, through uh, Bard and, and others ultimately go to a team of humans that say, ooh, this was a really bad question, really odd question. Ooh, the answer here is something that, uh, so, you know, when you look at all those different pieces and parts to be able to say that, you know, uh, whatever I put in about my client uh, and, you know, who, who's actually going to see that through that process. It's one thing if it's uh, the AI algorithms. It's another thing if humans are seeing it, and it's another thing if that all, that data ultimately feeds back into the large language model and becomes identifiable as well. So lots of pieces and parts there that uh, still, I think, have yet to be defined. So I was, uh, um, I think what struck me when I read through these principles, which I just did very quickly before I got on the call this afternoon. Um, because I surprised you, I wasn't going to be here. <laughs> because you surprised <laughs> me because you weren't going to be here. Um, is that they're actually, to, to me, it's it, like when we talked about um, um, uh, the, the uh, you know, the Avianca case a, a little while ago, the, the legal research one, where where we, we all kind of said, I mean, this wasn't really even an AI story. It was just a lawyer incompetence story. Uh, and and I, some of these principles here, I don't really think these are necessarily unique to AI. I mean, these are basically the same principles that apply to any use of technology in the legal world. And I, as I read through these pr principles, they're effectively all ones that I think anybody, uh, when they've talked about the duty of technology competence, or if you look at some of the ethics opinions around the duty of technology competence, these are all kind of already spelled out there. I, 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 I think this is a, I, I mean, it looks like it's a great task force and I realize this is just a really early draft, but I'd say that essentially all they've done here is put down what has already been said about the duty of technology competence and, and attach the word AI to it. Um, and, and so I think, I, I think, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I think that's actually really interesting. Um, and I don't disagree, but I think it raises the point that we're there People are needing these guidelines because even though all these rules apply to all of technology, somehow people are treating this one like it's different, like this is magic and they're throwing what all of their common sense out the window. So it actually doesn't surprise me that it maybe tracks what, how, like, because we've all been saying this is I same thing with any tech. You should know what tools you're using. You should know what it does. But people seem to be losing their minds about that. That I think yeah. is it, all these rules or uh, duties are subsist. Uh, subsumed in knowing what the technology is, what it does, what its limitations are. The minute that you, and again, it's spreadsheet, your word processor, generative AI, uh, your tar, your car, your, your other tools. Uh, the minute that you fail to get a handle on what the technology is, does, how it can fail, that's when the problem, that's when you fail all these, I'm pointing to my other screen here. <laughs> when you, um, uh, when you fail to provide all those duties, that's when you submit uh, the draft to the judge that's got made up cases. You know, that's that's when the failures really start to occur. And, you know, magic technology. I mean, I, I've got enough gray hairs to go back in time before PCs. You know, we were all doing mainframes, mini computers and 
proprietary systems like Barrister and Syntrex and so on, uh, PCs were seen as the magic devices. They were going to solve all these issues, all these problems. Uh, they created probably as many as they uh, potentially resolved. But, uh, and that's one of the things that I think uh, Ryan and the group, uh, uh, I think one of the quotes was there, there is no magic in this, none at all. Yeah, I think it's one of those cases where the devil's in the details. And I, I think I like the way they've set it up uh, at, at the, uh, where they've got the print, they've got a, a chart with the principles and then examples of activities that are inconsistent with those principles or that are consistent with it. Uh, and to me, I mean, again, right now, like under the principle duty of fiduciary care to the client and usage of AI applications, they, they list as something inconsistent with that is not fact checking or verifying citations from the outputs of generative AI. Again, that's the Avianca case. Uh, yeah. So I think as they kind of flesh that out uh, and as more people put input into this, I, I, think, I think it's those examples that could really provide some substantive um, help and guidance for, for legal professionals around this. Yeah, I agree. The examples chart is that they currently have one example for each principle, but there might be more because I saw people in the comments saying it would be principles are good, but it's more like direction would be great. And I think that um, if they could build out more of those examples, that would be helpful too. Because the way, at least the way they were doing this at Codex is they just had a little task force breakout session where people just wrote proposed things on post-its and they put them all up there and then eventually themes emerged and that's what turned into principles. So there are a lot of concrete ideas underlying them and examples will go a long way, I hope. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, AI is still a black box so they'll only go so far, but yeah. <laughs> Not to mention ethics. Um... Yeah. Um, all right. Gene, uh, uh, you've uh, you've uh, done your own little survey this week and uh, got some interesting uh, information to share from that. Yeah. So I am um, th thinking about, you know, the Thompson acquisition, like, well, this in the past six months, two small innovative legal research products got eaten up. So we had uh, VLEX boss fast case and we have case text being bought by Thomson Reuters. And, you know, thinking back over the course of my career and I also actually have a lot of gray hairs like Jeff, I can think back on many, many, this whole history of- uh, I think many, I've got y'all beat on that count. Yeah, <laughs> many, many acquisitions in legal publishing and it sort of bleeds into legal tech. And so I asked my, I asked, it was primarily the law librarian community. I got, I, I sent out a small survey asking for the best and the worst. So I analyzed the, the, the mergers and acquisitions that had been, that people had to acknowledge were basically a win-win. And I looked at what makes certain mergers work well. And surprisingly, the company that was, so the, people's concerns about mergers were price increases, the product getting completely absorbed and disappearing or the uniqueness of the product disappearing, declining customer facing support and loss of staff with technical expertise. And the, the companies that came out on top of the, or the deals that got mentioned the most were Lex, Lexus and Lexmark, you know, Lexus was top and then Lexus Intelligize, Thomson Reuters Practical Law, Bloomberg BNA, and then Fast Case Docket Alarm. And I looked at what made those acquisitions success, successful. And it was basically 
respecting the underlying winning formula. Why were people buying that product in the first place? And, you know, in my, when I do the worst of them, there is one spectacular fail going back to 20 years that I will talk about then. But every everyone who's been around the community knows that there was one wonderful product that got totally ruined and disappeared after it was bought. And people still think back to that. So, um, yeah, my, my product the, with the vaporware, like the, the data lake and the IE. And the, no, <laughs> Thanks, Joe. ISO, ISO 85 million. I was everything. <laughs> but your UX and your UI also, Joe. Yeah, they, they were they were they were like VX and VI. Like they were one more. Yeah. All right. <laughs> OK, thanks, Joe. So the, so the products that were most successful, like there was sort of a hybrid where Lexus took IntelliJize and Lex Machina and instead of completely absorbing, absorbing them into the, their flagship product, they sort of let them remain as standalone products. And I used to wonder about when I heard those were both bought i like these will never work if you try and put them inside a, a traditional search engine and they were smart enough they've just peeled off certain features of those products to enhance their flagship product but they have let people continue to consume intelligize and lex machina in the native product and same that's exactly what um uh Fastcase did with Docket Alarm. You can you can consume your Docket Alarm data however you want to. So that's one of the winning formulas. And the, and the other two that were sort of a different character of acquisition were, uh, and they were more text based. Was Practical Law on Thomson Reuters and BNA into uh, to Bloomberg. But the I also got a summary of what made the acquisition successful, and it was continuing to invest and improve the acquired product, effective integration, not destroying the original product, and maintaining the unique character of the of the original product. So I feel like I'm, I, I really was surprised because over the past, say, eight to 10 years, Lexus actually took a lot of heat because they did more acquisitions than anyone else. And they were being reamed on a lot of different counts for tying products together and doing a lot of other things. So I was actually really surprised by the results that at the end of the day, people recognize the benefits of the companies having been acquired because they, you know, they also recognize that smaller companies can't invest in the technology, they can't compete for tech talent. And so they, at the end of the day, even though prices were raised, they do feel like overall the, the legal community has benefited from the way the products have evolved. So that's it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, there's there's certainly, I think, some analogies to be made between Lexus's acquisition of Lex Machina and, and the Thomson Reuters acquisition of Case Text. Because I mean, the Lex Machina, Lex, Lex Machina had a great product but they were really limited in their ability to expand it because they just it was a really dative data intensive uh, 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 you know product that that needed all this state court data that uh, cost a lot of money to get and to clean and and, and do everything else and, and Lex Machina just didn't have the money to do that so and Lexus already know. had it in court yeah and Lexus had it already so 
that you know was really uh, that really provided the fuel for Lex Machina to begin more, much more aggressively expanding into other states. And I think to some extent that's true with Case Text. I mean, Case Text is this great product, uh, but they don't have you know they don't have Thomson Reuters data. They had some data, but they didn't have Thomson Reuters data. And uh, uh, I think similarly that having access to that data. Uh, uh, could really be a springboard for Case Text to much more dramatically improve its its, it's uh, all, generative AI product. Yeah, it's almost like a Deus Ex Lex Machina. Uh, I don't know. I was trying to do something with that. All right, never mind. Go. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> that way, I, even, I couldn't I get that one together. I don't even see where that go. was going. I don't even see where that was. Well, going. Ju just the combination <laughs> making it better. You know, like coming swooping out of nowhere in the combination data then makes it try. I don't know. Look, Although I tried. I do think that the, the the case text research product is going to completely disappear, which is a tragedy for people who want to get access to low cost legal, legal research. It really was serving a community that's not, you know, their their fast case is pretty much the last company standing that is a lower cost legal research product. Um, and I, I did get the impression, and I think some of you are, some of you may have also heard this that. The co-counsel brand may live on, but it's going to end up, that technology is going to end up all over Thomson Reuters, not just in legal. It's going to end up in their financial products and their risk products. I mean, I'm just not even sure Thomson Reuters is actually thinking about legal when they bought the product because they are such a big company and they are in so many different industries. You know, it, it's fantastic. Well, I, I feel like they I even said that. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I feel like they even said that in the investor call that morning about it, um, that they wanted mm -hmm. to use it across their other verticals and maybe even in news. Sorry, go ahead, Jeff. I was going to say, I, I think Lexus and Thompson are bifurcated in some instances. When you're talking about research software and tools, there's a much better flow there. But if you start straying outside of that, Lexus and, and TR is the place where good software goes to die. Or get acquired. In, in my case, I'm one of the. Uh, I, I was actually with a company that acquired some Lexus products. So, uh, having seen it from that side, um, but certainly one of the things you mentioned, uh, Jean, uh, about don't ruin a winning formula and 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 really supporting the products that you're acquiring, I think was one of the things that um, you know that I think I've seen in some of the acquisitions that have been successful, and uh, certainly something we tried to do when we acquired Law and. And, and the e-discovery suite of products from Lexus uh, and the best of both worlds and having something where they're complementary products because sometimes it seems we see companies that have, it's almost like, well, why did they acquire this? Because they already have it here and now they have it again. What's going to, how's that going to shake out? Um, the other thing I think that's going to be interesting as time goes on is Historically, a lot of the platforms we've been seeing have been on-prem platforms where when they're sunset, you know, companies may continue or firms may continue to use them. Uh, and it's kind of like, okay, well, not a big deal. But when they're cloud-based, um, and I, I remember eDiscovery Point from Thomson Reuters a couple of years ago, they decided to sunset that and gave it a year. It's cloud-based, which means you have to get the data off. You had to move it somewhere. You couldn't continue to use it once they said that was it. And that's going to be one of the complex factors when it comes to cloud-based solutions that are going to be sunset is you can't just 
turn the switch off and, uh, or what have you, you've got to move the data. And that's a challenge in some cases. And I know it caused some, uh, some firms some issues in that case. You're exactly right, Doug. There are still some lawyers out there running WordPerfect 5.1, I'm sure. Oh, of course. Yeah, there's there's some Asian users out there and, uh, you know, and things like that. So it, it, the people get uh, one of the things that's really challenging is when people get used to a platform, it's hard to move them off of it. And uh, and that's certainly one of the things you have to think about when you acquire a platform that, that people enjoy using is it's hard to get people to change uh, that dynamic. It's interesting is this week, uh, the uh... TM tra trademark docketing company Alt Legal acquired one of its competitors, but what it did is it just acquired the customers because basically the competitor's platform was on the way out. I mean, it was an older platform and would have needed a whole lot of uh, development work. And supposedly, I mean, if you, what what Nahal Madani, the, the the CEO of Alt Legal, said is that you know when when they started looking at what they wanted to how they wanted to develop their platform, they sort of looked at Alt Legal and said, oh, they've already got it. <laughs> so let's maybe we can do a deal with them and just move our customers over to there. And, and they've done a couple of deals like that where they don't really even acquire the technology. They're just acquiring the business and the customers. And then that other that other platform just shuts down at, the, at that point. Yeah. I appreciate them being completely transparent about that. Uh, the one thing I thought was interesting though is Gene, when you're saying how about 20 years ago, Lexus was taking all this heat for just buying stuff. And now they're one of their biggest immediate responses to the TR acquisition of case text was, well, I guess you have to buy if you can't build. So, I mean, they're now trying to attack them for taking the buy approach. Yeah. yeah. Funny thing about that. I mean, but some of their acquisitions were purely, I think, to take competition out of the marketplace because they bought several redundant products where, and, and now some of those products have disappeared. So I, I don't know. I I've said some pretty harsh things about Lexus acquisitions over the years. So when when do we get the list of the uh, acquisitions that were lose lose for vendors and customers? Probably in the next week or two. It depends on how much how. I, I actually I've started to go through the information. It's interesting. It's you know I'm not going to tip my hand. I'm 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 I have to go through all oh, the data and code it. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well. Uh, or I, I can have Doug do my word cloud. <laughs> I'm happy to. Uh, I do love a good word cloud. All right. Well, in talk about a win-win a, a partnership, we next have a partnership between iManage and Above the Law to do a survey on law firm security. Yeah, so we did this survey <laughs> on cybersecurity that is out and people can get and go get it and it's wonderful and uh, put your email in and then did iManage Did you write about it or is it just the... Uh, the survey thing. No, well, no, I'm on leave, right? So I haven't okay, written about right. it, but but I did do a webinar on it uh, oh, this okay. week. So we did a C and for CLE credit, if people want to go find that too, uh, we talked about the findings of this cybersecurity uh, survey. A lot of stuff isn't particularly surprising. There were a couple of takeaways that I thought were interesting. One was that there was a lot of sentiment. Uh, blaming hybrid work and being like, oh, you know, hybrid work is made, you know, increase the increase the risks uh, cyber wise. And my takeaway on that was, that's a lie. Uh, and, and the reason I said that is because it, at least from my perspective, as somebody who's been doing this a long time, 
being a lawyer was a seven day a week job anyway. I worked from home Saturday and Sunday anyway. I was using all sorts of Citrix and uh, taking stuff wrongfully, but because it was easier and faster, taking it, putting it on my local hard drive. I was messing around. I was doing all these things. We've been doing all this all along. And whether or not you're only doing that from home Saturday and Sunday, or you're doing it from home Friday, Saturday and Sunday, that marginal difference isn't the real issue. The, the acceleration, it strikes me, is, you know, there's more and sophisticated bad actors out there. There's potentially more people who realize lawyers work from home. I think maybe some of the bad folks didn't realize we all work from home two days, Saturday and Sunday, and that and assumed we just went out on our boats on those days. Or it did some comfortable yachting and golfing, uh, but we didn't. We instead were still turning those documents. So maybe now that they realize there's hybrid work, they're attacking more. But I, my big takeaway was it felt like this is the first time that law firm leadership has found a good reason to care about cybersecurity. Uh, they they didn't really worry about it before, but now now that they're complaining about the office, they feel like, oh, well, we can blame the associates for wanting to work from home as the real problem for us. Uh, but uh, I think that cybersecurity is a big issue. I just didn't think it was a hybrid issue. Uh, and the other thing that I, I that was a big takeaway for me was that I, I really did think we talked a lot about phishing in this conversation and you know how do you deal with it and all uh, you know a few weeks ago i had that story of a law firm doing some stupid things to try and convince associates not to open up a phishing attack for longtime regular listeners uh but one point that came up is that stuff's all got to go away soon because it's got to start becoming a non-human response to phishing attacks because the phishing attacks are getting to the point where you a are never going to be able to stop all of them and b generative ai is going to get to a point where the phishing attacks start looking we've we've gotten lucky for a long time based on the fact that i see a phishing attack and i go wait a minute there's no monarchy in nigeria but eventually <laughs> that's not going to be the issue it's going to start coming from a partner and it's going to start sounding like that partner because they have a bunch of uh, documents that that partner has written and put out in the public, and they know the mannerisms of that partner, and it's going to sound like that person, and that's when things are going to get bad. And so that was the other takeaway I had was that phishing, while it's the big thing everyone's afraid of right now, and they feel like training is the answer, uh, long term, it's not going to be training. It's going to have to be a technical solution. So I was I was curious about the timing of the survey because one of the things I noted was uh, the specific concerns list and the top concern was security of file transfers. Uh, yeah, and obviously I think some of you are probably familiar with the MoveIt file transfer zero day vulnerability that's hit yeah. so many companies. I yeah. went I once a month I try to look at just kind of data breaches out there and I counted nineteen different companies in that just in July that reported a data breach. Um, uh, and uh, I think something like at least 4.7 million document or million records affected. And that was at least because 11 of the 19 didn't hadn't reported any record count yet. So probably considerably higher. Um, but to yeah. me, it's one of the things that I 
I don't know how CISOs sleep at night, honestly, because there's just so much uh, to worry about these days. But that was one that was notable to me because uh, a lot of those were third-party providers that um, that resulted in their data being breached. It was a third-party provider with access to their data that um, was using MoveIt. Um, so uh, to me, that's I was curious if the timing of that happened to coincide with that having been out there. You know, I wish I knew the exact uh, stuff behind it. I, this is this is a thing that kind of cropped on me while I was on leave, and they were like, "You need to do a webinar on it." And I was like, "All right." Like I crammed the report into my head and uh, moved on. So I don't know off the top of my head, but this is more reason that people should download it. See, now I'm doing my job for the business side, getting more, <laughs> collecting more leads. You're like human clickbaiting. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I think uh, Michelle Spencer makes the the comment uh, in, in the chat that technology was, will only get you so far. The last mile as humans are frequently the problem, and I think this some of what's in this survey uh, kind of backs this up. I mean, it says you know it asks about organizations' readiness against certain kinds of threats, and uh, the one for which they are least ready or least prepared are, are ransomware attacks. And I mean, and that's the problem with ransomware attacks is, is that last mile thing. It's that, uh, you know, some some naive person opens that uh, uh, Nigerian uh, prince email and and all hell breaks loose after that. Um, it's not and, the Nigerian uh, prince anymore. It's the text message that purports to be from the managing member. People right. are doing more yep. stuff that's scraping from your website uh, so yep. that it it looks a little more legit. Yeah, uh, right. Now, no, I mean, you still have some spelling saying, yeah. issues and Gen AI, Gen AI will take care of some of the language and, and spelling issues. But I disagree just slightly with Joe. There are some issues with remote work. Uh, you have less secure prem in terms of people's routers that haven't been updated in years. Uh, home PCs that potentially haven't been updated. And it's not necessarily the lawyers because lawyers have always had the option to work from home, to work from your yacht, to work from your summer home, which, whichever location you may want. <laughs> uh, but it comes down to, and then uh, we were talking about this just the other day. And when you're talking about, uh, I, I have the luxury uh, of, I actually have a home office, got a door, doesn't actually have a lock on it, but I could put a lock on it. But everything that I do is it was in my office. When you're talking about a paralegal that's using the end of the kitchen table as your office, and now you've got potentially documents either spread out hard copy or um, uh, stuff on the screen, <coughs> there are some additional risks. I agree that it's not yeah. you know, going to be the meter at 95%, but there are certainly some additional challenges uh, that, that come from work from home. I guess I guess I hadn't really thought through the non-lawyer part because from my perspective, I was like, oh, I was already doing all that stuff from home on Saturday because that's the day I didn't go to the office. But you're right. Well, I guess now there's more people touching documents and inform well, sensitive information from and home. One of the things yeah. that you admitted to, Joe, is taking all those documents yeah. on a thumb drive and, and taking them home. Oh, yeah. The minute oh, yeah. that, that those documents leave my system, so speaking as the CIO with my CIO hat on, uh, they're controlled, they're organized, they're secure inside my environment. You take them home, put them on your PC that still is running Windows 10 and hasn't had an update for yeah. last six months and they get infected and they you put it back on the thumb drive or you know, they, they're able to be compromised 
uh, off your local machine because that's easier than some kind of remote access, whether it's Citrix or RDS or, or whatever yeah. it might be. So again, those are the challenges uh, that come in. It's not just now the lawyers taking stuff up on thumb drives, it's potentially everybody in the firm taking stuff home on thumb drives, which oh. they shouldn't be. Maybe they yeah, should maybe. modernize Citrix because it's, it's basically yeah. the same as when Joe and I were associates 15 years ago. There are, e there are ways to make this easier. <laughs> and thanks to our sponsor, Citrix. No, um, but no, it's, uh, yeah, no, it, 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 yeah. It, I, they're they're, uh, they're trying that, to get, they're like reawakening in the, in the legal world, the, the share file. I mean, for a while, they were really big in the legal world and they kind of got quiet and they're suddenly making a new push back in illegal. The, Microsoft the, 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 ate their lunch on remote access yeah. and ShareFile yeah. is, is an amazing tool. That, yeah. That's a good tool. We use that as well. Yeah. Uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about the uh, the Lex. I didn't even have it on my list. The the, the Lexus uh, announcements this week regarding uh, some, they gave some more previews. I think a few of us wrote about it in terms of what they're doing with uh, Microsoft in terms of generative AI and uh, that they, they kind of talked about their their plugin, they're going to be rolling out for uh, three, Microsoft 365 Copilot, like you know, a couple of weeks after Thomson Reuters talked about their Copilot plugin that, that they're developing. And uh, I, I thought it was kind of, actually kind of funny uh, just to note that I, got, I had an email this week from a legal tech CEO who said, you know, we're planning to someday do some stuff with generative AI. And should we just put the press release out now saying we're going to do this someday or should we wait till we actually do it? I'm not sure what the answer is. <laughs> yeah, we talk about that internally all the time. Like when we ever get, we get a new press release before we read it, we're like, should we take bets? Is it going to actually be an announcement or is it a non-announcement? Like, right. yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually asked uh, Jeff Pfeiffer at Lexus this week when I talked to him about, about I, I said, are you, are you just trying to keep up with the Joneses here? <laughs> or is this like, he said, well, no, no, we want our customers to be able to plan uh, you know, be able to plan their technology. And if they're planning an office upgrade or whatever, they should be aware that these things are coming down the pike. So that's, oh, okay. That's fair. All right. That's fair. What, what okay. I don't get, though, is Microsoft announced their co-pilot uh, costs. So I think it's $30 a person uh, a month. So that's almost doubling your standard Office 365 E3 agreement. Uh, and so then if you're going to add all the tools from Lexus and everybody else on top of that, $30 a month, I don't know who other than big law, which kind of has budgets way bigger than uh, than common sense is going to be able to uh, afford those kinds of tools. That's who they're going for. This, this ain't a small firm product. Sure. Clearly not. Even midsize. Even midsize, yeah, maybe not. Uh, all right. Well, I think that's uh, the end of our, I don't think, I'm pretty sure that's the end of our hour, according to my clock here. Uh, so uh, appreciate everybody, Doug uh, and Jeff, appreciate you uh, sitting in with us today and sharing your thoughts and insights and uh, all of our regular panelists. Thanks for being here and everybody in the audience. As always, thanks for your chat that makes, uh, makes the show so much more interesting. So will be some of us will be back next week we'll see see you all then thanks for Take having care, me everybody bye everybody bye, bye. bye.